Welcome along to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Nell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain, behavioral and organizational sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. As always, make sure to follow us on Twitter at brain for biz and LinkedIn, or else we look forward to your feedback and comments by email to laurie at brainforbusiness.ie. I am delighted to be speaking today to Professor Christina Crego, Assistant Professor of Psychology at Longwood University in Virginia. Dr. Crego earned her PhD in clinical psychology at the University of Kentucky. Her research investigates both empirically and also conceptually the importance of shifting the classification of personality disorders from the traditional categorical model to a more dimensional approach. Dr. Crego also publishes on various diagnostic and assessment issues related to conceptualizing personality disorders with a strong emphasis on utilizing the five-factor model of general personality structure. Some of Dr. Crego's most recent work focuses on assessment and diagnostic issues related to the personality syndrome of psychopathy. Christina, it is great to have you with us. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Well, to begin with, from a scientific perspective, what is a psychopath? Yeah, this is a really interesting question in the field because um, there's actually somewhat limited agreement in the area of psychopathy um, about kind of what truly is a psychopath. And, and we'll get, I'll talk more about that later, but um, what most everyone in the field can agree upon is this idea that a psychopath is someone who is deficient in emotional responses. So um, they might be more callous, um, they might have more unemotional traits, less emotionally reactive. Um, they tend to lack empathy, and so they don't really feel bad um, when something happens to someone else. They often, but not always, um, exhibit poor behavioral controls, so a lot of kind of impulsivity um, type behavior. And what happens is that this commonly results in kind of persistent, what we call like persistent antisocial deviance and criminal behavior. So acting in a way that is inconsistent with um, how we kind of view um, our morals and what is right and wrong. Individuals who are psychopathic tend to kind of act um, contrary to that. It's interesting when you outline some of those traits. Thinking more broadly, um, when you think about popular culture, for example, how does what you're describing there in terms of those traits differ from what people might more typically think of as a psychopath? Yeah, I think that when people typically think of a psychopath, um, they tend to think of serial killers. And so I have this activity in my class when I start my lecture on psychopathy, and I always say, you know, give me some names of a prototypic psychopath, right? And they always do the standard like Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy. If we're looking at like TV characters, they might say like Hannibal Lecter. Um, but the reality is that, that it goes beyond um, just serial killers because while I would argue that probably all serial killers are psychopaths, um, not all psychopaths are serial killers and probably a small percentage of, of psychopaths are in fact serial killers. And so what you tend to see more of it when you think about kind of 
a non-serial killer psychopath might be somebody like a Bernie Madoff, you know, um, where he very much kind of ruthlessly just kind of like, you know, created a Ponzi scheme that ruined many people's lives and, you know, and didn't really seem to think much of it, um, you know, in terms of remorse or empathy or anything like that. Um, and, and that's probably how you run into it more in everyday life. It's not always just, you know, the serial killer that is, um, you know, out to get you, although it, it very well could be. The reality is that those are very few and far between and more likely are people that just um, are willing to essentially do anything to get what they want with very um, little or, or no remorse or um, kind of thinking again about what they've done. You mentioned uh, Bernie Madoff there. Are there any other examples of well-known real-life psychopaths that, that perhaps differ from the Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, uh, etc. types that you mentioned? So as a clinical psychologist, I can't say that someone for sure has a syndrome unless I have directly assessed them. But what I can say, and an example that I like to give in class is um, Jordan Belfort, so like the Wolf of Wall Street movie, is a really great example of the fact that like he really had no cares about you know the lives that he was ruining the impact that he was having um and you know i think that he's along those same lines of like a bernie madoff but maybe more popularized in in tv you know which i thought it was a fantastic movie but i mean gosh um i i certainly think he had some psychopathic traits that were pretty evident um you know when you kind of familiarize yourself with him in the case Absolutely. It is, as you said, it's a fantastic movie, but he he doesn't come across as being a particularly likable person in a lot of uh, in instances uh, and, and very self-obsessed and, and, and self-absorbed. If we, we think back a moment to, to the introduction, I mentioned in that that you do work on the, the five-factor model. How do, do the traits of a typical psychopath or the typical psychopathic traits, should I say, link to that big five model? Are there links? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the links are very strong. I have done a couple of studies relating measures like um, the psychopathy check, like hair psychopathy checklist um, and um, uh, Scott Lilienfeld's measure, um, the PPI the PPIR, I can't think of what that stands for now, but, um, and, and they do relate um, pretty highly to the five-factor model in the sense that there's a lot of traits, psychopathic traits that can be found in the domains of antagonism, which is um, opposite of agreeableness, conscientiousness, extroversion, and um, low neuroticism. And so when we think about like what traits go within these domains, like if you're thinking about antagonism, you have things like distrust. Um, so this is like an item from a distrust question would be like, when someone does something nice for me, I wonder what they want from me. So like clearly just not trusting the motives of others. Um, you have manipulation, which is pretty self-explanatory, self-centeredness, um, oppositionality. So, um, you know, I just don't want to do what other people want me to do uh, on principle. Um, you have arrogance and then you have callousness. So those all kind of fall within this antagonism, which is opposite to agreeableness under conscientiousness. And what's interesting is that that conscientiousness is the domain in which it differs from our more historical conceptualizations of psychopathy. So historically, when we started with Cleckley, 
Um, we thought of psychopaths typically as very low in conscientiousness. Um, not surprising given that his sample was a psychiatric sample. So these were all psychiatric inpatients at a hospital, um, typically not excelling at life. Um, and then we moved on to Bob Hare taking over um, kind of the, the field of psychopathy and really revolutionizing how we think about psychopathy. And um, he, his samples were all prison samples. And so again, when you think about like the role that conscientiousness plays, these individuals are typically very low in conscientiousness. But when we developed our conceptualization of psychopathy from the five factor model perspective, um, we actually found that um, high levels of conscientiousness can also play a role in psychopathy. And so psychopathy isn't just low conscientiousness, but it can also be high conscientious as well. And that's what we call um, like a successful psychopath, right? They're, they're higher in conscientiousness, so they're higher. And so from the five-factor model perspective, we have some of those low conscientiousness traits like disobliged, so like, oh, I don't meet my obligations to others, um, things like impersistence um, and things like rashness, like, you know, not thinking things through. But you can also have individuals high on conscientiousness um, and that be reflective of just a different flavor of psychopathy. So conscientiousness is an interesting domain because um, it's a newer way to think about psychopathy is this idea that, you know, they, they potentially can be quote unquote successful. And then you have traits like from extroversion. So things like coldness, um, you know, which would be like, I don't want to be close to other people. You have things like dominance, you know, it's important to me that I'm like, you know, top dog in the group. Um, and then thrill seeking, right? So getting in trouble because of a risk that you've taken. And then lastly, we have neuroticism. Um, and really it's more low neuroticism because it's things like unconcern. So like, I don't have a lot of fears, anger. Um, people know not to make me angry because I'm very reactive. Self-contentment. So like things like I don't experience regret about past behavior and then self-assurance. So like I'm a smooth talker, I feel confident in my ability to manipulate people. And then you have things like invulnerability, right? And that's this idea that like you can remain calm and you're not anxious in situations where other people might experience anxiety or panic or something. So that's where that kind of like low anxiety comes into the mix. That is probably one of the more controversial things in the field of psychopathy at this moment. Okay, in interesting. And as you were talking there, it, it struck me that you know, from my limited understanding of where personality and personality traits come from, you know, it seems as though there are, you know, potential, potential genetic influences, there are also potential sort of nurture influences that, that can influence uh, an impact on how a personality develops. Where would you say these psychopathic traits emerge from? Is it an inherited aspect? Is it something that grows out of someone's home experiences as a child? But where would it come from, do you think? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I mean, you know, it comes back to the old nature nurture debate, right? And that is um, what what any good psychologist should end with is it's a combination of both. But, you know, the reality is that that personality has a very strong genetic component. And like a lot of research has found between 30 to like 50% of personality from the five factor model perspective is genetic. And so, you know, you have to assume some type of genetic component. 
Um, but then you also have to think like you were saying, you know, about environmental factors, risk factors. So typically with individuals um, and, and a lot more work has been done with like antisocial personality disorder than um, psychopathic personality disorder, but um, they, there's very big overlap in, in those two syndromes. And so oftentimes um, you could have something like a lot of physical abuse is going on in the home. Um, and so that's in part a learned behavior, um, you know, but then you could also argue that that aggression can also be genetic. And so there's kind of that genetic component that is then um, being learned through observation in the house or something. You could have things like a tough urban environment that just leads to hanging with individuals that are not from a great crowd, but, you know, as we know, you know, that that sometimes is the case in various neighborhoods and that can contribute to things. You also have like interesting, what I would call like comorbid psychopathology. And so like Ted Bundy is a really good example of this in that um, very early on in his life, he was essentially like a peeping Tom and he had a lot of sexual deviant behavior that many would argue was more likely what led to him getting caught than to like the actual psychopathy in and of itself, because he is what we would consider like a successful psychopath, very high in conscientiousness. And so it's kind of like that comorbid psychopathology of some type of sexual deviance um, that was present for him. Like at a very young age, he would read like detective magazines that would detail like very brutal, like sexual and physical assaults. And then he started, you know, peeping into women's windows and, you know, turning that into something. And then and then when he started killing women, um, the sexual component of that was very strong in that, like, for a lot of his victims, he would bury like on a mountaintop that was cool and like cover them up with snow and then like return back to their bodies and, and you know, do things that, um, you know, most people, I hope, would not do. So, yeah, it's just... I think it's a it's a very strong combination of, of the genetics of these traits as well as kind of what you are exposed to environmentally and and just you know in some instances is just kind of a recipe for disaster interesting and you mentioned uh, a few moments ago the potential crossover between psychopathy and and antisocial behavior similarly then how does psychopathy and, and psychopaths generally, how do they relate conceptually to, to, to sociopaths and narcissists? Are they related or are they quite distinct phenomena? I think they're very related. Now, there's less out there in terms of like straight numbers between psychopaths and sociopaths only because sociopaths so a diagnosis of someone being a sociopath isn't actually a diagnosis. And so we tend to have less like numbers information. But the reality is that a lot of people view psychopathy and sociopaths as sharing very similar traits. Um, you know, they share the fact that like they have a poor inner sense of right and wrong. Um, they can't really seem to understand or share another person's feelings. But when we think about like differences between those, typically like a psychopath totally lacks conscious. And so there is no little voice in, in their head that is saying, don't do this, it's wrong. Versus a sociopath typically knows 
they have a conscious. They know that it's right or wrong. Usually it's weaker than like yours or mine might be, but they know that it's right or wrong, but they do it anyway. And so that's one of the biggest differences is, is just the, um, the awareness that what they are doing is right or wrong. Now with narcissism, it's really interesting because while on the surface, you might think of these as very different beasts, right? Like you might think, oh, a psychopath, you know, when you think of your kind of prototypic psychopath, you think of a serial killer and then a narcissist, you know, someone who's self-involved, you tend to not think that they're going to be that closely linked. But from a scientific perspective, these two disorders are actually comorbid at a rate of somewhere around 80%, meaning that 80% of individuals that have psychopathy also have narcissistic personality disorder. And so there is a lot of overlap. The overlap typically comes in the manipulation, um, the callousness, the um, social skill, the lack of empathy, the dishonesty. But where they deviate is that narcissism, as I said before, is much more of a disorder of self-esteem than it is about kind of um, these antisocial behaviors, if that makes sense. Absolutely, it does. And I, I guess it's perhaps all three of those uh, phenomena, you know, psychopaths, sociopaths, narcissists, suffer from the fact that they're often just bandied around in common discourse without any reference to the sorts of more scientific elements that you're discussing. Would that be fair? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's it's safe uh, it's safe to say that, you know, in popular culture we tend to just kind of lump things together, but you know, there are key differences and and you can certainly have someone who is narcissistic that is not psychopathic, but um, you know, some of the key traits of psychopaths are kind of have these narcissistic components where they're very self-involved and things. And so, you know, it's something that we have to keep in mind that there are these similarities, but there are also these differences. We've, we've given a number of examples uh, through the conversation of, of different uh, potential or, or definite psychopaths, but are those traits, those psychopathic traits, are they by definition bad or are there some situations or maybe some cases where the traits are actually positive or desirable? Yeah, I love this question. In graduate school, I actually, for one of my classes, my personality theories class, I had to write a paper and and the topic I chose to do was, you know, is psychopathy adaptive? Um, and the reality is that even though kind of this term psychopathy is, is kind of entrenched in this negativity, um, there is the potential for these individuals to possess adaptive skills. So if you think about things like stress and anxiety immunity, um, you know, that can be a very adaptive skill to be able to face stress and, and anxiety provoking situations under calm. Um, you know, that is a very adaptive skill. These individuals do have remarkable social skills. They're very charming. They're very charismatic. And as we know, just, you know, based on kind of our interactions in, in the social world, um, the more socially skilled you are, the better that is for you in terms of making connections and friendships and romantic relationships and all those things. They have very strong leadership abilities. And again, kind of this absence of fear proves to be a strength, you know, and if you think about that kind of like in a business sense, the role that that could play, you know, it could be 
taking risks that other individuals might not take because of anxiety or fear. And those things are all very adaptive. But beyond those kind of regular traits, if you think of kind of this idea of a successful psychopath that has all of the traits of a psychopath with the exception that they are high in conscientiousness, um, conscientiousness is the personality domain that is associated with the highest level of academic and professional achievement. So you have these individuals that have low kind of stress and anxiety. Um, they have good social skills. They have leadership abilities. And on top of it, they're really high in conscientiousness. You know, this can be highly, these traits can be highly desirable. And if I'm not mistaken, and I'm just trying to dredge back through my memory here, thinking of conscientiousness in particular, isn't there a, a link established between conscientiousness in the big five and what Angela Duckworth called grit and, and, and saw as a really desirable be, uh, trait for, for, for success? Yeah. And so from the five factor model perspective, that would probably be like the trait of like doggedness, which is like a persistence um, to, you know, kind of succeed or, or kind of whatever might be ahead. But um, yeah, absolutely. That idea of grit or doggedness or um, kind of, you know, kind of single-mindedness, single-minded determination is like another way that you can conceptualize it. All of those things are obviously traits that, that you know, maybe some of us, some of us wish we had or, or that we have and have contributed to our success. And so, you know, I think that, that they can certainly be desirable, you know, and, and just because you might have some of these traits doesn't mean that therefore you're psychopathic, but you know, it, these traits are linked to psych psychopathy. And, um, and, you know, I think that there is an argument to be made about the desirability of some of these traits. Absolutely. And I, I guess in, in terms of that, then are there particular careers or, or professions where either we might perhaps find more psychopaths, putting aside the serial killer, friendly neighborhood serial killer, of course. Um, and, you know, or, or certain professions where you might find them. Yeah. So typically when we think about like individuals who have psychopathy in the workforce, from a scientific perspective, they're typically referred to as like workplace psychopaths, executive psychopaths, corporate psychopaths. Robert Hare actually coined the term like snakes in suits as a synonym for, for workplace psychopaths. And, you know, it's important to note before I continue into what careers they might be in, I just want to be sure people understand that there's a very small percentage of individuals in the workforce that have psychopathy. And so it's not like every person that you work with is a psychopath, even though it can very much feel that way sometimes, depending on where you work, you know, the, the likelihood that, you know, half of your company is run by psychopaths is, is very low, but they do very much exist in a corporate setting. And they do have kind of common careers um, that they tend to go for, particularly because a lot of them excel in those leadership roles and you'll find them in a lot of leadership positions. And in part, what contributes to this is kind of their ruthlessness. They have really strong charisma. They are fearless and they are not scared to take risks. Um, they're good at like making really snap decisions, but they're just not good at things like empathy, right? So that you're not going to find them being a nurse, you're more likely to find them in like business and industry, where they can take on those leadership roles, and they don't need that inner those interpersonal skills. Stephanie Mullen Sweet, who's a faculty member at Oklahoma State University, actually did a study 
looking at successful psychopaths, those individuals that are high in conscientiousness and and you're more likely to find those individuals as kind of these quote unquote snakes in suits. And she actually found that a large number were found in academic institutions. So like faculty members or administrative members at university universities in the legal profession. So lawyers and then businesses and industries. So things like CEOs, individuals in sales, technology. So yeah, you know, and, and it kind of begs the question of like, why, like, why are these particular industries um you know why do they draw them you know and if you think about the traits that these individuals possess they can use the, their skills to their advantage right like again if you think about someone in a leadership position having that charm that egocentricity that persuasiveness a salesperson you know i mean of course you have to be persuasive lack of empathy independence focus and they just fit more with those types of jobs, jobs like a CEO, a lawyer, sales, rather than in helping professions like nursing, therapist, or doctor or something like that. Well, if, if someone w was listening to the, to the podcast and sort of recognized perhaps some of those psychopathic traits within themselves, are, are there any particular takeaways that you would want to share with them? Yeah, you know, I think that the most important thing is, um, that just because you recognize these traits in yourself does not mean that you're a psychopath. Um, you know, traits can occur on a continuum. We all fall somewhere on every single trait that exists. Some of us fall higher than others. And, and when we think of syndromes like psychopathy, we have to really think of them as like, they're a constellation of maladaptive traits. And, and typically there's some threshold that determines like, you know, have we reached this level of maladaptivity that warrants a diagnosis? And so, you know, I, ju I just give that as a warning of just because you recognize some of these traits in yourself doesn't mean that therefore you are a psychopath, but many of these traits can be used to their advantage, right? And they don't have to be negative in some way. But if you notice that you possess some of these traits and you're worried that it might negatively impact you, your organization, your coworkers, or your employees, self-awareness is really key. And so you really want to maintain that self-awareness and familiarize yourself with the ways that you could be negatively impacting your work environment. So you want to consider things like you know, are you shaming coworkers? Are you kind of are you spreading lies that are detrimental to your coworkers or your employees' well-being? Do you kind of frequently lie to excel your own kind of ideas? It's it's kind of these questions of am I using these traits that, as we talked about, can be very adaptive to help or hurt my organization in whatever role you're in. And I think that, you know, if you're at, if you, if you're noticing that you have some of these traits, I think obviously you're self-aware and I think some self-exploration. And if you think that you are potentially harming your workforce and that's something that you care about, right, that's key, whether you, whether you um, want to change it, um, you know, you can certainly do some work on yourself or you can see somebody that can help you kind of manage those traits and use those traits for improving the company rather than hurting the company. And from an organizational perspective, do you think organizations, businesses, whatever, should actively look to recruit psychopaths or, or, or perhaps they should maybe avoid them and try not to recruit them? What, what would you say? 
yeah, um, you know, I would argue you should probably not actively try to recruit a psychopath ever, but, um, you know, it's tempting, right? From an organization perspective, it's tempting. These individuals do possess traits that are desirable, particularly in a business setting, but there is a lot of research to support that individuals who are psychopathic or have psychopathic traits can actually do a lot of damage to a company when they're in senior management roles. And so what they found is that given that kind of psychopathic individuals tend to be more common at higher levels of corporate organizations, their behaviors, if they're negative, tend to create kind of like a ripple effect through the organization, setting a tone, right? Or like what we call like corporate culture. And a lot of times you can have bullying, you can have conflict, you can have stress, you can have high staff turnover, absenteeism, reduction in productivity and social responsibility. And ethical standards of entire organizations can actually be damaged if a corporate psychopath is in charge. And in fact, in 2017 in the United Kingdom, they found that companies with leaders who show psychopathic characteristics actually destroy shareholder value, tending to have poor future returns on equity. And so I would say it's probably best not to actively seek out psychopaths, but if you have someone that displays the behaviors or the traits that you value as an organization, I wouldn't say that you should necessarily actively avoid that either. You just wanna be mindful of, you know, what individuals in a leadership role are doing for company culture. And that's really important because um, as we know, you know, all these things like staff turnover um, has a really high negative impact on like bottom line and the amount of money that has to be spent and stuff. So it's just something to, to, to keep in mind. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. But before we finish up, a question occurred to me just as we've been talking for the last 30 minutes or so. All of the examples that have been given of psychopaths in, in the real world and have been male. Um, is that coincidental or, or is it actually more of a male characteristic than a female characteristic? You know, that's a good question. So I tend to, I try not to, but I tend to talk a lot in he when, I, when I'm talking about psychopaths. But females can absolutely be psychopaths. Um, they, I would say that they are fewer and less common than males. Um, if you just think from like kind of like an evolutionary perspective and like a gender roles perspective, typically women are not, you know, and when you think about this combination of like genetics and learned envir and environment and the role that that plays, you know, I think women tend to not be celebrated when they have some of these traits, whereas men tend to get more accolades for, for exhibiting these traits. So I do think that it's less common in females you know, I mean, even if you think about like serial killers, I mean, female serial killers are incredibly rare, you know, but it, it's hard to determine how much of that is like bias, um, like gender bias um, versus true differences. And so I did a study one time in which I was going to a substance abuse treatment facility and it was exclusively for women. And I went and I did interviews of antisocial personality disorder and borderline personality disorder. And what I found was that many of these women met criteria for antisocial personality disorder from, you know, doing a structured clinical interview, but 
many, most of them just had a diagnosis of like borderline personality disorder. And so, you know, I do kind of wonder what role gender bias might play in a clinician's decision making or how we perceive traits and the expression of traits, um, depending on whether it's a male or female, you know, and so it's, it's a, it's a tough question, but I think that as the field currently stands, men are typically um, meet criteria for that more frequently than women do. Okay. If people wanted to find out more about your research, is there anywhere they can go? Yeah, I mean, there's so there's you could email me directly. I'm always responsive to emails. I'm happy to to talk with anybody that wants to talk. Um, and so my email is ccrego, the number six, at gmail.com. I don't give my work email only because they have really strong spam filters. And then <laughs> it'll just get like sent to spam and then you'll think I'm ignoring you and that's not true. So um, that's probably the best email. There's also a website called ResearchGate. And I don't know if you're familiar with it, Lori, but pretty much anybody can access it and access like research that individuals are working on or publications that they've had. If a publication isn't readily available due to like copyright issues, you can just shoot them a message through the website um, and it will, you know, and, it, it, and typically researchers have it stored and then they just send you a copy of, of kind of whatever work they want to see. So ResearchGate is another awesome kind of avenue um, that is doing great to promote research or you can just email me. Either of those are totally fine. That sounds great. Dr. Christina Krego of Longwood University, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Lala Song, Electronic Beat Time, and Dream Sequence by Lorenzo's Music is licensed under an attribution, share, and share alike license.